Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I am a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. I decided that I was done being physically tied to my business and that I was going to spend the second half of my life living a bigger life and maximizing all the areas of my life, like family, friends, spiritual, travel, my health. And I also knew I was going to need some help with this. So I reached out to the best minds on the planet who are experts in their field to help me to not only create true time and money freedom, but to also help me to lead a truly fulfilled life. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Success lurks just beyond what you can see. I really loved learning. I was really passionate about it. It was stimulating and it was energizing. And then I'd be able to look at their site and be like, hey, I, we built that last night at three in the morning. I'm gonna spend 100 hours a week on my business. I better do it with people that I wanna be with. You really are who you surround yourself with. Well, look at this, here we are. This is Rob Murgatroyd and welcome to my very first freaking episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. I could not be any more honored than to have my best friend, Darren White, as my first guest. There is nobody that I know who exemplifies working hard and playing hard more than this man. We go deep, we cover a lot of grounds from him traveling 80 countries to creating a $100 million company. This dude is insane. I really just want you to listen to it. So we're going to jump right into this. And without further ado, enjoy my very first podcast with my very best friend, Darren White. Darren, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you know what's so cool about this? Uh, we get the pleasure of doing this uh, episode here in Africa. Africa. We're freaking in Africa, which means that when you hear noises in the background, seagulls, somebody doing construction next to us, we've moved three times, um, just realize that we are recording this live outside in Africa, like I said, overlooking the ocean. So anything can happen. So welcome to the show officially. Um, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. I thought the first interview of the show should be with someone that has shaped my life in more ways than I can name. You know, you've largely been responsible behind the scenes for many of the big decisions that I've made over the years. And your counsel is absolutely invaluable to me. So with that, I just say a heartfelt thank you. Um, and uh, as they say, let's begin at the beginning. You and I chose uh, the same career paths. We decided to become chiropractors. Why did you want to be a chiropractor? Yeah, great question. Um, I always knew I was going to be in medicine of some sort, and, or healthcare, I would say, in general. Uh, leaning toward medical school and probably had gone, would have gone to med school in Canada. And uh, my mom actually at the time uh, worked for a chiropractor for a large part of my growing up. And so I had access uh, to, to a chiropractic clinic. Um, but it wasn't really until I got to Europe. I was traveling around Europe and I met a chiropractor in uh, Bad Zwischenhahn, Germany actually. And uh, I stayed with them for a couple weeks. And I just realized that I wanted to work on the end of healthcare that was really about promoting health and preventing disease rather than managing disease. And when you visit 
the two different types of offices, they're very different. In, in, a, in, a, in a typical medical office, uh, people are generally not really happy. They're there because they're in a lot of pain and uh, they're just trying to manage something. In a chiropractic office, it seemed like people were going there, whether they were, or, you know, quote unquote, well or unwell or wanted to get better or were already better and wanting to achieve peak performance. And the vibe was just happier and healthier and more fun. And so it was really quick for me um, when I came back from Germany. Uh, I, I immediately, within a 30 days, enrolled at Life University. Uh, and it was, I was destined to be a chiropractor at that point. But then you did something a little unique. You made a decision to leave chiropractic school, travel around the world to, I think it was 80 countries, um, and feel free to correct any of this, but right smack in the middle of your doctorate degree, you decided that you were going to just go travel. Uh, nobody does that. I certainly didn't want to do that. Why did you do it? It's a good question. I mean, my parents are both travelers. They met traveling. Um, it's in my family. I think my uncle lives abroad. He lived in, you know, Ethiopia and Pakistan. And, uh, you know, so I had global cousins. Um, I was sort of around it, I guess. And then, you know, coming out of high school, uh, my, my best friend at the time, Mark Haynes, him and I had basically written about 150 different countries. We had this big box stacked up where we had wrote the country and said, we're just going to come and see you and can we work and what's cool to do there. And we got a lot of responses back. So we'd been planning all through high school this, you know, grand trek around the world, uh, starting in New Zealand and working our way back to Toronto. Um, and so just always been uh, passionate about uh, traveling. And so, yeah, you're right. Every, once I got to, after I got to college, I'd already been to 30-some countries. And uh, every quarter, so we were on the quarter system. So every summer quarter, I would cancel my lease in my apartment. I would throw all of my stuff uh, into storage. And we would pick an area of the world uh, for three months and do that. And so we did that for 10 full years, three months each year. Um, and we just pick an area like Southeast Asia, or we would do the Middle East, or we would do India, or Nepal, or back to Europe. And um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So it's amazing, you know, because when I think about when I was in that situation, and I can only compare it to me, um, I just wanted to get my degree and get out. What are some beliefs that you had at the time that allowed you to make the decision to say, yeah, I'll get my degree when I get my degree. This is more important. Yeah, I don't know why it wasn't tied to the quarter, right? Everybody wanted to graduate with their circle of friends. Um, you know, for me, I, I worked so hard during college that I was already detached and sort of segmented out kind of on an island a little bit. And so it was just not as important for me to, you know, finish with my cohort, if you will, uh, and graduate and walk across the stage with all my friends. Many of my friends graduated years before I did. And uh, so I had that uh, already. Secondly, I, I looked really young. <laughs> and uh, um, I didn't think anybody would believe a word I said if I started seeing patients too early. So I wasn't upset about the idea of having to graduate a little bit later. And then lastly, just so passionate about visiting countries. And I knew once I started in the workforce, you're not going to get to travel again. Luckily, that didn't turn out that way for me. But my belief system at the time was once you got a job, uh, you were not going to travel again. And so this was my time. 
uh, and I remember the last year where I knew I was going to graduate, and I knew this was my last three month stint, you know, of uh, packing up and, and, and traveling into culture. Uh, it was really sad. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that it didn't turn out that that was my last travel, but that was my belief system at the time. Okay. So y- you get on the plane, you land in, you know, India. You've got no money. I'm sure that you were scared about what each day was going to bring. How did you approach that level of uncertainty? It's the best. I mean, I learned this when, my fir- when I first went to Europe, uh, just, you know, after high school. For me, the best thing is getting up in the morning in a foreign country, going down to the group, you know, breakfast room, and cracking open a map. And maybe at the time we were reading, I don't know, Let's Go Europe or Lonely Planet. And, uh, and getting the map and the book out and deciding, hey, where are we going to go the next couple of days? Like for me, that feeling of uh, being able to, you know, create the next couple of days in your life from anything you want to do is far more exciting to me than the, than the fear of what are we going to do or where are we going to go? So, uh, you know, I know this, this is going to be a difficult question to answer because every day was unique and different, but can you describe what a typical day was like? Because I know you did it in youth hostels, right? Yeah, I, I traveled. So the typical day is, um, you know, back then we didn't have the internet <laughs> or ways to reserve anything. So it was all done by phone call. So you did have to book a couple days in advance. Uh, for some of the hostels that we were staying in. But generally speaking, you know, you, you land around a hostel. And then, uh, you know, you get up in the morning. There's group showers, which was always a really interesting thing for me because I didn't play a lot of sports growing up. And so uh, just having unisex showers was, you know, a little weird. But uh, you did your shower. You came down early in the morning. Uh, you Remember, you're staying in bunk rooms. So there's, you know, anywhere from, you know, four to 16 people in a room. And you're stacked uh, inside that, either two or three high. And, uh, and you come down, you have breakfast in the morning, you plan out the day uh, with your friends. And you, may, and you see these like little groups uh, congealing. And you may you know, float from group to group. This group's going to go do all the museums. This group's going to just go drink. You know, this group's going to go uh, off on an adventure. And then you kind of pick the group that you really want to go with. And so you really just had that kind of freedom to be, you know, super nerdy one day or, you know, very party-like the next day. And, um, and then, of course, you're always keeping your sight out for, like, when you're going to leave and where you're going next. For me, traveling on a dime, I always planned my next trip to be, you know, eight to ten hours away from where I am. And the reason for that is you could save a hostel night. And so you could sleep on the train and uh, get to another city. And so oftentimes I was zigzagging across Europe, even though I would go, you know, eight hours away and then come eight hours back and then eight hours away. Uh, And again, you would save a lot of money just by uh, traveling on the trains at night. So was was your personality when you first started doing this one where it was easy to talk to people that you never met in different groups and say, hey, I'm going to come with you to the museum? Or was that a skill that you had to learn how to connect and, you know, warm up to a new group? Yeah, it was a a learn. I mean, I've been shy my whole life. Uh, And I think working in the service industry, you know, forces you to kind of talk to people. You have to, to, or else they don't eat. You mean like a a waiter or a waitress? Yeah, 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 or a bartender. And, um, And so, 
yeah, but and still, even when I got to Europe, very shy, and it it forces you to, um, you know, because you always have an opener, right? Whereas if you go to a cocktail party, you know, the the opener is so broad; it could be anything. But when you're traveling, you can talk about where you are and where you're going and where you're from, and there's so there's some immediate sort of easy things that you have in common with that person, and so it is a little easier. Uh, and a good training ground, if you will, to get into conversation with folks. Um, but yeah, that, I struggled with that, and that and that uh, that commonality uh, bring bring a lot of hope for me, you know, in that in that uh, in the networking kind of category. So we'll we'll get into business later. But how has that experience informed your life in terms of business? In other words, are there any skills that sort of transformed into how you do things now? Uh, I mean, number one is just do what you're passionate about. I mean, you get to some of these countries. If you're not passionate about traveling, you will leave fairly quickly. Um, remember, you're running up against barriers of culture, barriers of language and food, and uh, sometimes disease and famine. And, and so you, you run into all these interesting obstacles while you're traveling. And if you don't truly have a passion for you know, meeting people and understanding food and learning how to communicate. There's sometimes you're in a country where there's zero language opportunity between you two. Like if you're in deep in Nepal, uh, I'm n- I mean, you're just having to figure it out. And, and you know, business is the same way. You just run into these weird things that uh, you never, n- no one taught you or you're, n- there's no book about it. And you get slammed with it. And if you're just not passionate about building and running into those obstacles all the time, uh, you die out pretty quickly and you go home and you watch 90210. (laughs) Were there any uh, particular experiences uh, during your travels anywhere that stand out the most for you? I mean... It traveling is so broad, right? You're in Europe, and everybody kind of gets along pretty easy, and and uh, but then the next day or two days later, you can be in deep in India, and and that's a whole different experience. Uh, you know how you're going to get. I mean, I was on this crazy train ride, uh, thirty six hour train ride uh, from uh, Delhi, no, from uh, Bombay to. Uh, eventually we got to a city called Udapur and that was a 36 hour nightmare of a journey where there were, the trains are so oversold and so overcrowded that I literally slept outside of the urinal, which there's no running water on a train. It just kind of goes out on the track. And so you can imagine the smell and it's not the safest place people are, you know, so just imagine trying to stay awake for 36 hours. But when you are dozing off, like clutching all of your belongings next to the toilet. Um, I mean, it, it, it wasn't really fun at the time, but certainly 15 hours after you got off that train, it was the best experience ever. Um, but yeah, there's some interesting, diverse uh, moments for sure. Was there a time where you were like, what the hell am I doing? I got to get out of here. Like, I can't, this is crazy. I, you know, I got, I got, I got my, my, my future ahead of me. I'm leaving school. It's 36 hours. I'm stuck next to something that smells like the worst piss I've ever smelled in my life. Was there ever a time where you're like, I, just get me out of here. I got to go home. Yeah, I, t- I almost tapped out in uh, a place called Dahab, uh, Egypt, which is uh, the southern... Uh, kind of tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And it's a great 
Bedouin community. You know, you can climb Mount Sinai from there uh, on the beach. Just beautiful setting. And I probably became the sickest I ever became in my entire life in that moment. Uh, weeks on end of uh, just, you know, not being able to hold anything down. And, um, and I, you know, not to embellish the story too much, but it got to the point where we were, I was almost airlifted out. And so I did have, uh, some friends, uh, so my friend, uh, had, had a connection in the Egyptian army and we were, you know, literally one phone call away from, uh, pulling out of there. And I, I remember cause you're hallucinating at that point. It's 110 degrees. You're sick as can be. There's no air conditioning. Uh, you can't eat or drink anything. And I, I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is really bad. And it's weeks on end. Like this didn't end, uh, in a couple days, but you didn't. Why push through? Um, I don't know. I was probably just delusional at that point. Uh, but I did. I just You just kept waking up thinking, okay, this day is going to be better. And I remember boiling Schweppes Limeade. And I don't know if it was just timing or what it was, but uh, that seemed to work. Um, like boiling it to drink? Yeah. I don't know why we boiled it. Maybe to get the carbonation out. But some Bedouin was you know, pressing these herbs into the palm of his hand and then putting these herbs in me and then washing it down with this boiled Schweppes lime. I don't know. It was the weirdest thing ever. But suddenly I started to get my legs back a bit. And, uh, and man, we couldn't, we went to Ireland after that. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I'll, I'll probably never go back to Egypt just because of that. <laughs> do you, do you think that some of these experiences that you forced yourself to get through when you look at business now, they just don't see things don't seem so hard in contrast to where you were. Yeah, I, I think I mean business is about solving puzzles, constant puzzles that you know you you never really have seen before, and uh, you know traveling is the same way. You know you can you think you can have a predictable travel experience, but anybody who's you know even gone gone out of the country for even a week or two. Uh, nothing goes as planned. And so when you're constantly immersed in these foreign countries with low resources, you know, my budget was 30 to $40 a day. Mm. And in some countries, I had a budget of five bucks a day. And so you're constantly rationing your, your resources around really unpredictable experiences where it would be easy to just pull out a $100 bill and go stay at the Taj uh, Hotel. Um, and, or, you know, are you going to stick it out? And uh, for me, the gems were found, always found, like in business, they're always found when you push through uh, a puzzle or push through a challenge. Uh, you uncover the most beautiful sunset. You un- Most people won't, you know, we were in this uh, palace, Monsoon Palace, and at the time it was not uh, a recommended thing to do because you, it was easy to get robbed and you kind of had to sneak in there at night. And uh, we also climbed the pyramids. I mean, we did all these weird things that give you magical moments. And, and that view from the top of the pyramids, like nobody could do that today, I don't think. Maybe there are still people climbing up the back of them, I'm not sure. But back in then, we had to like go in at night and sneak around. And, but then you get this most magical experience. And that's the same in business. Oftentimes, the best business things came from a mistake we made or something we just had to push through. We did, couldn't buy our way out of it. 
And then you create a product that became, you know, viral in nature. And we would never have done that without planning it. So pushing through really, you know, oftentimes leads you to that gem. Was there a favorite failure that set you up for later success? I mean, we had a massive travel failure in uh, when we, we decided to go from basically from Thailand uh, to Vietnam across land. And it was one failure after another. Um, and, and we couldn't buy our way out at, at all. Um, and so, you know, we got across, we were actually in Cambodia, and we got to the Cambodian um, border of Vietnam. And, you know, we're all excited, and we're, there's, I think there was five, four of us, or, uh, yeah, four of us. And uh, we get to the border, and they're like, no, 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 you need a, a land visa, you have air visa. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. I hand it back to him again with a couple bucks in my passport. No, 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 you need, you need, an, you need land visa, you have air visa. So then I go to $5. Anyways, get to 20 bucks. This guy finally points the gun in, into the chest and like pushes us back. This is the first time in my life I haven't been able to kind of give a few U.S. bucks and you're through. And, um, and so, you know, we had to actually, uh, I had left the team there. Uh, in a cement cinder block like thing with with no door and no floor, and while I went back to Phnom Penh by myself with their passports, which I looking back that is just the dumbest thing we we should have all went back together. I went back to Phnom Penh and and got the visas the right ones and tra- and here I am traveling alone at night in a truck that I hitchhiked across Cambodia, which you know ha- has its risks. And came back, uh, and we've you know eventually got across and into Vietnam. And ironically, you know Vietnam is where we've set up a company today. And so, had we not had pushed through and, and made it into into Vietnam, uh, I probably wouldn't have the same level of confidence uh, going into Vietnam today as as uh, a place where we have a company. And so that massive failure and just you know relentlessly pushing through. Un, easy to turn around and go back, and then if I had been presented with a Vietnam idea, I might have been, you know, not as not as uh, warm about it because I had a gun to me. And uh, but pushing through it and realizing that the Vietnamese people are some of the most wonderful people in the world. Uh, I just happened to meet a jackass at the border. Uh, you know, I would have had I would have left with that taste in my mouth and never gone back. You know, without getting too woo-woo, um, was there any serendipity in your mind, or is there any serendipity, if I'm using that word right, where you ultimately wound up, which we'll get into in a bit, uh, opening a company in Vietnam? In other words, when you're there, when you're in Vietnam now, are you do you do you reflect on your time in Vietnam? And if I were to, you know, ask you while you were there, you know, someday you're going to open up a, an office here in Vietnam, what would you have said? Yeah, there's no way. I mean, this is a communist country. Uh, it's hard enough to open a business uh, in the U.S., let alone in a foreign country, let alone in a foreign communist country. Uh, you, you know, there's just no no way I would have entertained it at all. Um and so, yeah, when I'm there and sitting up on a rooftop patio overlooking this vastness of the city, uh, I'm just like, I'm so glad we punched through and met this culture um, because we're in love with it now. My wife and I absolutely love this culture and everything from the food to the people. to and, and when you see the struggle they've gone through 
which is another massive irony, the struggle they went through, uh, and to, to not hold on to that or carry it forward and just be opening and welcoming, uh, even though, you know, I'm a perceived American, even though I'm, I'm technically UK uh, as a citizen, but I'm perceived as an American there. And you got to remember, not long ago, it was the American War Crimes Museum. Uh, so, you know, the fact that they're opening their arms and, and have forgotten uh, or at least forgiven mm -hmm. that period of time uh, and just embracing tomorrow, it's, uh, it's, it's a miracle. Do you think about it when you're there? In other words, when you're when you were doing work for your company in Vietnam, do you reflect back on the times that you were there? Uh, all the time. You do? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's very different. I saw it under a very different... I mean, that was 15, uh, 15 plus years ago. And uh, it, it's a very different time now in Vietnam. And they... You know they've invested so much in in STEM technology, or STEM uh, education and technology, that uh, you know thinking back to my early days on a moped around that city, it's uh, it's magical. I mean, just seeing the difference between the two, and then realizing, wow, here I am back 15 years later, uh, even more in love with it. Yeah, man, it's got to be crazy. Yeah. How were you? How were you different when you got back to chiropractic school to finish your training? Was it a letdown for you from the adrenaline high of travel? Oh, yeah. I mean, every time you come back, it's a very somber experience coming, you know, re-entry, if you will, back into the States where, you know, again, the cohort, you, you just left your cohort of friends. They're now one quarter ahead of you and you have to meet new friends in the quarter. And, and just generally speaking, people you know, you've just been immersed, right? Three months in a Middle East culture, for example, and relating to people as you come back and they're talking about, you know, Britney Spears or some, <laughs> you know, what TV show they're binging uh, is so weird and you feel so disconnected. And then, of course, you're back to the sober experience of like, I'm going to finish my school. And, and, uh, and I remember being scared to finish because, man, if I graduate, like... It ends. This is over. It's over. And uh, well, let, let me interrupt you and say, here we sit in Africa. So, right. So perhaps it isn't. And that's been the magical. Uh, I mean, that's why I said that, that that was the belief system I had at the time. My life since then has been anything but the same. I mean, uh, we've we've you know forced ourselves to continue to travel, and uh, a lot of that is you know thanks to you. I mean, there's no way I would travel as much as I do without knowing you. Yeah. And so uh, having the gift uh, of that, you know, we're very lucky that we've been able to continue it. All right. So let's switch gears. Let's let's move out of travel and uh, let's talk a little bit about the next stage of your life, where, you know, now you got your degree. You move to Seattle, you open up a bunch of chiropractic offices, you're starting to make some dough, and you say, hey, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to build something entirely different. I have no experience or training in how to build a corporation, but I'm going to build one anyway. And you build a $100 million plus company with 200 employees. You just hit number 482 in Inc. Magazine's fastest growing private companies in the United States, right? So I want to dig 
a little bit into the early stages and milestones that you had to hit in order to create this. So let's start at the beginning of the current business that you're in. What is Aduro and why did you create it? Yeah, Aduro is um, an interesting company that we, you know, sort of uh, created by mistake. It was an accidental company. Um, and it, it, it started as a marketing company named Worksite Wellness. And really what, what it was was an extension of our chain of clinics. Uh, we had a chain of wellness centers in Seattle. And it was really the kind of the community service or marketing engine uh, for that. And so what we did was we went into local companies, about 200 local companies in Seattle, and we offered up kind of these free services of, you know, lunch and learns around nutrition and, and back care and um, biometric testing. And we did it in a way to say, hey, you know, this is, this learn something new about your health. Maybe that's apply some new strategies. And hey, if you need us someday, you know who we are if you need us. Um, uh, long story short, we we sh began to shut that down because you know once you get the practices big enough, they begin to self generate, and uh, so we, we just found that that this was becoming uh, a non essential item, and so we began to wind down the company. As we were doing that, we were approached by uh, at the time it was Fred Meyer, which is now Kroger, uh, bought by Kroger Company. They said you can't leave, you can't stop these you know quote unquote free services. Why? Well, because you're saving us approximately, you know, $2 million in worker comp stuff. And I was just like, tell me about this. And so we dove in and, and really understood that there's this whole world of employee well-being. And um, I think we incorporated the next day after learning that insight and uh, eventually changed the name to Aduro. And uh, so today we exist as kind of a corporate wellness company where we, you know, help mid mid and large and jumbo employers, you know, manage the overall well-being of their, of their employees. Why'd you call it Aduro? Yeah, so Aduro came very thoughtful. We went through a massive, you know, hundreds and hundreds of names over eight months. And uh, we didn't want to name it anything well or wellness or well-being. We wanted to stay away from that. It was just too watered down. And Worksite Wellness was absolutely the worst name you could have <laughs> of a company. And, um, and so, uh, one of the things we always heard about our services were, wow, you guys bring this like refreshing, this like new experience. Like you almost set fire to our old pro program and blazed a new trail. And so we just felt like, uh, you know, a duro means to kindle in Latin or set fire to. And that's what we did. We just lit up the well-being uh, world, which was just, uh, just filled with clinical, sterile, antagonistic programs that treated the individual, you know, like, you know, they were just a liability. And uh, we just knew we wanted to treat the individual uh, as, you know, their potential and really uh, have more of an aspirational approach to well-being than a uh, clinical, you know, antagonistic uh, kind of thing. What's the approach to naming a company? In other words, what process do you go through if somebody wants to name a company? And, and what were the, the two or three finalists that didn't make it? Yeah, I'm trying to think back to those finalists. So I always wanted to name my company something blue. So I, I it was something like blue, blue oak, blue wood, blue, oh, like, I don't know, blue wall, blue sky, I don't know. I just felt like, uh, I, so I was stuck on that. The team was really hating me for it. 
Um, but the process is uh, really important because you don't want to get down the road if you are successful. Of, and we're in a couple of these right now where you know people are challenging, even though we went through the right process, which is we had our name trademarked. You know, we we you know we did we didn't just do the you know check the box trademark. We actually gathered as many categories as we could for our trademark, and you know that's one thing. And then you you actually have to defend it too. So you you need to have you know your attorneys on retainer to every time something pops up, you know you quickly have to defend your your trademark. And so the process, you know, first of all is. Um, you know, making sure that you do a search on the USTPO site. Uh, you, What's TPO? You, you, so the United States Trade Patent Office. Organiza- office, yeah, something like that. Uh-huh. But I would actually hire an attorney. Like, I wouldn't do it yourself. Um, you know, it's easy to get the trademark yourself. It's, I don't know, four or 500 bucks and, you know, six months. But the attorney will help you make sure you articulate your value proposition and the services you might in the future do make sure you're in the you know the proper classifications and make sure you're properly set up to defend it because at the end of the day you know trademarking is really about your ability to defend it it's not just because you have it and so i would spend the extra whatever a few thousand bucks uh, setting it up correctly that is a mistake i always made early in business was you know, it's easy to do these things yourself, but later on, if you're if you're not set up correctly, that's just a piece of paper. And and as we're seeing now, even you know, we're being challenged by another Aduro brand. And um, even though we have our trademark, um, but because we set it up correctly, it's going to be easy to defend, and uh, we'll avoid a lawsuit. Yeah, pay me now or pay me later. So one of the things that really has stuck out for me, you know, because my path was, uh, I stayed with chiropractic for, you know, 20 plus years and you went on a different path. We got, we got a helicopter flying over. So that's, uh, that's, so it's the magic of doing it live. Um, if you could sort of break down maybe three or four inflection points that, uh, can help people who want to do something similar but it seems very overwhelming to them, you know, because it's easy for us to look and go, you know, well, he's got a $100 million company. But, you know, it was first just you and Tony, which is your wife, and you had a few employees. And then you hired a management team. And then you hired an executive team, which I think you've used the term C-suite, but I'm, I'm, I'm open to being wrong there. Um, and, you know, now you're in the process of raising uh, $20 million. Can you walk us through maybe three or four stages and how you learned what to do to go to the next stage? So maybe, maybe you could start this with it's, you know, you... Tony, we got this worksite wellness thing, and you got to, you know, you hire a couple of people. Like, give me a couple of stages that that takes you to where you are now. Yeah. So, again, the accidental company, we didn't start the traditional way that most people do, where they, you know, write a business plan and they get some prototypes and they hire a couple people, maybe they raise some money. Uh, you know, you get product market fit, you get some revenue and you, you know, you begin to scale. We, we, we didn't have a business plan. Um, it was just Tony and I and, and a couple other uh, partners. And, uh, and we, you know, so we did something different. We decided that 
hey, we love this space. Uh, the employer, in my opinion, and we can talk about this later, but has the largest opportunity to actually influence uh, an individual's health and performance. And so we were, like, that was our goal. That was our North Star. Um, but we didn't really have any experience in this world uh, of employee well-being. And there are different types of companies out there. There's, you know, biometric companies. There was platform companies, tech companies. Uh, there was, you know, coaching companies. There's financial wellness companies. They're all providing these services. And so what we decided to do was, as kind of our first phase, was let's license a few things that other people do and put them together in a better way and better marketing and, uh, and then just learn. And so we decided to get a few customers and, and, and then we got feedback from those customers. And then over time, I don't know, I think we were licensing probably 13 different or 15 different, uh, services. And, um, you know, and then we would say, okay, this biometric company, you know, which is a large national concern. We just decided, Hey, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to be a little more hands-on. So we just over time began to, you know, build out those services and, uh, and only stick to a couple key partners that we, we license from. And so that was, uh, how, that was kind of the first phase was just get in and learn and listen and be passionate about the problem you're solving. And then, uh, then, so that was first thing. So how many, how many, one. how many employees at that stage? Two. Oh, oh well, one. Um, so it's you, your wife, and one person. Yeah, we're, yeah. I okay. mean, we were, we, we, our first account, our first massive account was actually REI. And, um, I remember the day you called me. Oh yeah. I remember the day I signed that uh, contract and it was probably the biggest opener for our company. And also, you know, uh, the person there, Marilyn, who, who ran the well-being program there was a very, very experienced well-being leader and, um, been on every side of the equation from the provider side to the, uh, to the employer side, to the vendor side. And she's just been, been through it all, built several, you know, world-class well-being programs. So she was a great leader and inspirer for us, but little did she know, you know, she was talking on the phone and she would request this and we were quickly, you know, Googling it or trying to figure <laughs> out what, what she was talking about. Do you think, she, then, do you think she was on to you at any point in the process that like, I don't know that they are as big as perhaps they're giving me the impression they are. Well, what's great about Marilyn is I think she did know, like she knew. And we were finalists against some really safe bets. And I think she chose us because she knew she could be, we were more malleable. And I think she decided to take that risk. And, uh, and so she became, you know, uh, probably our closest mentor at that time. Well, the funny thing is still is because, you know, let's fast forward 15 years mm -hmm. and, uh, Marilyn runs our healthcare team oh, at Aduro. God, I never knew that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it just, I wish I had forward. her here to actually ask her a couple of questions. <laughs> the lessons I'm learning here is you are incredibly open to possibilities. Yeah. I mean, you have to be, I mean, you have to be, that's a mantra of ours in our company is, uh, you know, oftentimes success lurks in the things you kind of don't know you don't know. And, uh, and we could have been terrified of, you know, to work, you know, with Marilyn. Uh, but we just figured it out. I, I'm, I'm, there's so many things that she required or requested that we had never built or done before. And it would have been easy to say, no, we don't do that. That's not our thing. And, uh, 
we, we weren't. We were open to being led by her. And ultimately, it crafted, you know, the company we are today. So, okay, so that's the first stage. So it's, it's just you guys. What's the yeah. second stage look like? Obviously, you know, you got, you, you've got a lot of new business coming in. You kind of can't handle it. And you got to hire some people. What's that, what's that first round look like? We didn't have the resources for a recruiter. Uh, in fact, you know, Tony actually, even to this day, uh, has led our recruiting efforts internally. You know, up to we just just clicked over uh, 165 full-time employees, and two in and, and with part-time, we're over 200. And uh, that's largely been an internal thing for us. So again, unconventional, but. Um, yeah, so then you start to craft, you know, the, the jobs that, you know, so we needed account services. And um, it was kind of our first hires. Uh, and uh, a salesperson is, was our second hire. And uh, because we were just doing all the sales at the time, and or I was. Um, and then, then from there, we just started building out teams. Uh, so we went from there to uh, a design team, actually, was our fastest growing team early on. I think that was a part, a lot of our success. People weren't investing in design. And we, we, we invested in design very quickly. Why? Um, because so much of healthcare and, and how you navigate it is, is based on how you feel. And if something doesn't feel good, uh, you have less opportunity to engage that person. Um, and Can now, you give me an example of that? Well, like just think about a hotel that you go to uh, versus a hospital, mm-hmm. right? And, um, y- you know, the, the, they're very different experiences. One you walk into and, and, and it has this awful smell and, uh, you know, the colors are horrid most of the time and there's a lot of cement and you know teal and uh people aren't overly friendly in in the most cases and then you walk into a hotel and there's this they've just spent so much time uh first of all they're re-engineering the lobby probably every two or three years just to make sure that you feel great and you know as a as a as a healthcare professional that you know, as you stimulate how people feel and they begin to feel good, it generates, you know, higher levels of serotonin and, you know, higher levels of white blood cells. And so oftentimes the healing process begins with just, you know, welcoming people in a very uh, feel good kind of way versus, you know, pitting them up against an angry or antagonistic, you know, environment. So we were very design forward from the beginning. We were very brand forward and we branded all of our programs um, and our competitors were not. They had these stale, you know, sites that just felt icky. And we would we would come up with cool brands. Uh, uh, to this day, we still brand every one of our customers individually. Um, it's not a static website. Okay, so now you got the team. How many people at this stage would you say you had on your team? Yeah, so I'm, this this stage is probably we're in the you know a lot of individual contributors. There are about twenty of us now. Um, among sales, market, uh, no marketing, sales, a little bit of sales, uh, no marketing, but we had client services, uh, design, and we had some uh, configuration folks that, you know, configured the, the sites. How, do you, how are you dealing with all of these people that are coming at you? 
It's pretty difficult because all of them are individual contributors, so they require a lot of care and feeding, and uh, so a lot of your time. And of course, we don't know what we're doing either. So <laughs> it's kind of like them asking. It's like the blind leading the blind a little bit, <laughs> and so we're having to kind of create it as we go. And uh, it, and it was exhausting because we didn't know, you know. Uh, we didn't have a lot of, uh, we didn't hire a lot of people that had, you know, kind of scaled or built businesses. We were hiring a lot of, that's all we could afford was sort of, you know, the fresher, younger, more passionate kind of workforce, but not a lot of experience. And it wasn't until the next phase where you begin to hire, you know, experienced leaders who can help, you know, develop people. And, and uh, but we just didn't have the luxury of that in the Bef- early days. Before we get into that stage, how did you develop, when it was the blind leading the blind, how did you develop certainty to lead people when you really didn't know how to lead them? Uh, I used to go down and teach at the college. And... I would just obsess, you know, the night before, literally, uh, about what the next day's lesson would be. And I, I'd be learning it the night what before. What subjects did you teach? Uh, I and taught which business college? and I taught, I taught some business and technique. Which college? Uh, down at Life Chiropractic College West. Okay, got it. And, um, and so I would be studying these concepts the night before and then I would go ahead and teach them the next, literally the next day. And, uh, and the same thing happened in business, right, at the company where, you know, a client would request something like, uh, we want to do quizzes, for example. And I'm like, okay, quizzes, great. So let's go, I had to go research it, figure it out, learn it, kind of not master it, but at least, you know, good enough it. And then I'd have to go teach that to the, uh, you know, to our service team or to somebody, account manager, and then, you know, pass it off. So I, in, so, you know, you become kind of this master of all these domains, uh, when you haven't hired, you didn't have the luxury of hiring uh, those people. So I learned how to code myself. I learned how to uh, do graphic design myself. Uh, I learned, you know, even though I failed English uh, <laughs> many times, I learned to write content. Um, I learned to, uh, yeah, I, I learned all these things before passing it on to the team. And that's heavy when you're not only managing clients, but having to learn all these. But I was just so fascinated with it. Were you feeling overwhelmed? Uh, not really. Overwhelmed isn't the word. Uh, but I definitely, because I really did care about it. I really loved learning, uh, you know, how to pick images and stock photos and crop them and design them and add typography over them. I was really passionate about it. So in a weird way, uh, it was stimulating and it was energizing. And then I'd be able to look at their site and be like, hey, I, we built that last night at mm-hmm. three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Of course, we could never tell our customers that. but right. um, Until now. And now. Well, now there's a machine. And so, you know, uh, we have a massive machine, actually. You mean a machine of people? Yeah, because yeah. back then... Um, I could put up an ad the next day or I could put up a program, you know, grab the image, grab the, you know, make the content, uh, you know, borrow things from around the web and whatever. Now, it, you know, we have a marketing team where it first goes to the writer and then, it, you know, then they ship that off to the designers and then the design that goes off to, you know, our marketing leader. And then, you know, it does four rounds and like it's a production. What was your most difficult painful, oh, this is going to hurt to spend this amount of money on <laughs> this person. 
I feel like it's it's always that next senior leader <laughs> hire mm-hmm. every time. Well, over. well, we'll go back to it's the a big risk. Go I back mean, to the first one where you had to go because because I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, have their own companies and maybe they have a manager, but it usually doesn't go beyond that. So, like, what was that that first one where you're like, okay, I could do this on my own, but if I hire this guy, it's going to make things a lot easier, but. God, it's going to cost me a lot of money to do this. Do you remember, does, is there oh, yeah. one that pops into mind that was like you went back and forth on? Yeah, so that was our VP of, uh, basically our VP of operations and client services. At the time, she had both, she owned all of operations and all of client services. And uh, it was a big bet and really tough interviews. Um, and, you know, we weren't going to get the type uh, I mean, the price tag for that level of person, we were looking for a very unique person, someone that uh, had the level of experience, might be willing to take a bit of a haircut on pay and in exchange for some equity and in exchange for, you know, a little more freedom and flexibility around job. And we, we were lucky we landed that uh, person. Um, and, you know, her name was Julie. She's still on our team. She runs, she's, now she runs uh, our client services team. And so we hired another VP to run operations. And, uh, but massive life-changing experience for us from doing everything to having kind of a seasoned leader come in and say, okay, guys, this is how we build a team. This is how we do trainings. I was like, we do trainings? Uh, yeah, so she, you know, she you know, did all these offsites immediately and we began to up-level our team. It, and so we started to build this client services, you know, or, that was the first formal organiz- organization that we built was our client services team. Um, but you know, offsites are really around strategic planning, and they're and they're uh, we do them four times a year. Uh, you know, four days. You know, we just come off a four day offsite uh, for for annual planning, and then our quarterly plannings are one four, or two days. Four days in a row where four you guys days. were all together. Yeah, we rent a house, a massive house uh, in Sancadia, which is this uh, um, really cool community north of, or I guess that would be uh, east of Seattle, in the mountains, just over the mountains. And uh, massive house, uh, it sleeps like 16, and we have 12 people in it. And we spend four days, uh, two full and two half days, um, uh, working through the, the strategic plan, which we boil down to one page. We call it our one-page st- uh, strategic plan, which guides us for the entire uh, next year. So is it weird for you... Weird question time, but is it weird for you to like, you know, be in your pajamas with your employees in a house for four days? Is like that, that for, for so me another, feels weird. Another unconventional thing that we do. Uh, it's funny because we just hired a, uh, a new VP and, and he's like, really? Uh, we're, we're all going to be in the same house. <laughs> like he just, he couldn't connect the dots. Uh, yeah. I mean, this has been something I've done my whole life with our, you know, with our first company, we were very close to our employees and all, all the management companies, I've always had a coach and I've always had a business management company that I've, uh, hired and they used to always warn against getting too close to your employees. And I, this is one piece of advice I never took. And we, we always, uh, like in our last company, we took the entire company every year to Mexico for, you know, for four or five days. And um, you just build different types of relationships and you kind of get through, it makes getting through the tough times easier because you do feel like a little bit like a family. Um, and, uh, and so I felt like it served us really well. And so we've carried that into this company. And... Um, 
And I think that, hey, you know, I'm going to spend 100 hours a week on my business. And uh, that's a big chunk of my life. I better do it with people that I want to be with, that I would have a beer with, or that I would go out and have a cup of coffee with, or I'd be willing to go travel with. And I don't really want to be around people that I couldn't do that with. Do you, do you have any rules around how to not have it become too personal with people? Because I can imagine that, you know, you're in, a, you're in a house with somebody for four days and obviously you have a plan. But, you know, a couple of glasses of wine, some people have different thoughts on this, that and the other thing. Is there any rules that you have around that? I mean, hopefully you're hiring people that have their own set of rules, right? We're not really a rules culture. Uh, we have a bar in our office. <laughs> right. And really, we just say, you know, the only rule is just make smart decisions, right? Like, hopefully you're hiring people that have an inbound set of rules already mm-hmm. or mores that they, you know, and it, it, okay, so has the bar been abu- abused in the office once, maybe twice? I don't know. I don't really watch or keep tabs. Right. But, uh but over time, you know, the people that just can't make smart decisions just, you know, tend not to be on the team. Mm-hmm. And the people that make smart decisions, they just are. And, uh, and I, I think, so, no, we don't try to put rules around it. I just think that we are very blessed to have organically hired people that come built in with certain sensibilities. Look, at, at this point, I think it's very easy for people to assume that you've got everything all figured out, everything you touch turns to gold. Can you share a particular dark time that you faced in creating this you know, $100 million company? And what did you do to get yourself out of that struggle? Uh, geez, dark times. I mean, I feel like that's, uh, every week. We have, uh, <laughs> but is I there mean, any particular one? that? Yeah. Could- I mean, the first major blow, I would say to the company where we were. So one of the great things about, um, having REI as a customer is you have REI as a customer. Mm-hmm. It's massive amount of revenue. It's uh, a good, it's very credible. Um, you're off to the races. You know, once one company sees you have them as a client, you get others, uh, but the flip side of that and the risk is when you have that much revenue concentration in one client, if they leave, like it's devastating. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day that I, you know, we knew that the well-being thing was being scaled back. So we had a little bit of forewarning, but it, when it, that moment where they're like, we're not renewing the contract, uh, I mean, the, just, you just think everything's going away. You think your whole comp, at, at least at that time, you know, we were like, our whole company is going away. We have to lay off people. Uh, what do we do? Uh, this awesome, credible client is now gone. Thankfully, we built many others after that, but it was very terrifying. And so you're back to getting out a piece of paper and figuring out what are the cuts we're going to have to make and, and how are we going to, you know, get through this? And, you know, am I going to have to write a letter to the company and, and which I, we had to do because, of course, everybody's thinking the same thing. If we lose REI, like, do I have a job? Oh, a letter to your employees. Yeah. And so very dark moment and very scary. Uh, thankfully, uh, we, you know, one of our partners had gone through a loss of a client uh, about the same size uh, earlier that year and, uh, or maybe even a year before then. And so I watched carefully how they managed through that. Um, 
you know, the, the communication process, the, uh, you know, how they just reorganized the company. And it was a very thoughtful and very highly strategic uh, and highly executed transition. And so we just did the same thing. Uh, fortunately, you know, we were able to make it through without losing one employee. Uh, we, you know, managed to sell our way through it. And, um, uh, and it all worked out. But probably the most terrifying thing when you're just going gangbusters, growing, 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 everybody's excited and passionate and happy. And then you just hit this wall and you're like, whoa, like, okay, payroll, what are we going to do in one month? Like, we're not going to meet payroll. And so, um, so what's that, what's that look like for you when, when you've got that, you got that pain in your chest, you're fearful and you know, you got to work your way out of this. Do you get up early get a cup of coffee, blank piece of paper, do you pace, do you meditate, do you, do you talk to people? What, what's your strategy for going like, I'm going all in and I got to fix this, I got to fix this problem? Yeah, I mean, this comes from my travel days. So I'm, you know, you hit a, when you hit a wall like that and you, you, you really have no way out, right? You can't just tap out and, uh, um, and so for me, I, I can, I, it, it is almost energizing, not to this uh, ecstatic point, but like it's a very deliberate, um, good feeling for me in a weird way to be able to kind of retract into a space where I just, you know, pull out basically the profit and loss and, uh, and look at our sales pipeline and begin to, you know, to begin to strategize our way through it. And, um, and figure out what levers do I have available to pull. And, you know, you realize quickly you probably have about five or six levers. And some Describe you're a lever to me. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so like when you're managing cash flow, there's a couple things that you, a couple levers you can pull, right? You can, um, you can collect money faster from current clients. Uh, you can, so just get your AR team working harder. You can pay your vendors slower, Right, you could uh, and you could negotiate that. You could say, "Hey, uh, big vendor, um, we're going to have a couple months where we're going to be, you know, our terms are going to go from net thirty to net sixty, and uh, you know, can you help us out?" And they, they oftentimes do. Um, you lower your inventory, right? Obviously, you can scale back employees. Uh, you can scale back amenities. Um, so you just have these levers. And then, you know, which levers are you going to pull? Are you going to pull the employee lever? Or are you going to pull the payables lever? Or maybe you call a client and say, hey, we'll offer you a 5% discount for prepaying or uh, something like that. Is there a process that you go through to look at the upsides and downsides of each lever that you pull? Yeah, I mean, the first lever I want to pull is sales. So... What are the things that are in our pipeline that we could convert quicker? And, um, or even like before that, you're trying to pull the lever of retaining the client. So maybe we can scale the services back or maybe we can uh, go at risk on some of these things uh, where we you know, continue on with you uh, with some, like we had reduced some services with REI, for example, and continued on with some other ones. And um, uh, so we try that first, and then then it gets to your sales pipeline. Like, can we, can we pull some things in to quickly replace this revenue? And then it gets to AR. Like, how can we call on people? Then the next one is AP. Can we push some payables out, and then uh, or renegotiate some terms? And then 
you start looking at other ones down downstream. You actually uncover things that you're going to make a change on that you should be doing anyways. But just because times were good, you know, you're like, hey, that's just uh, the, the downside implications of that are, you know, probably not worth it. But here's what's interesting is oftentimes you can perceive the downside and uh, you're like, ooh, that would be bad to the culture or whatever. And you do it, you pull that trigger and then suddenly everybody's like, oh my God, thank God you did that. Like <laughs> we've been wanting you to do that forever. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, really? I've been agonizing for an entire year over that. <laughs> and then suddenly, you're, you know, it was the best thing you ever did. And uh, that can be around a toxic employee. Uh, that could be around an amenity you thought people enjoyed. Uh, it could be, you know, just whatever. But oftentimes these, these moments um, lean you out in a way that, you know, so now we just do it every year on purpose. Mm-hmm. We you proactively know, you're lean making, out. You're making me think of something. Tony Robbins says uh, when people succeed, they tend to party. And when people fail, they tend to ponder. All right, so let's switch gears out of business a little bit. Our travels together allow us to dig deep personally and share perspectives that we have to help each other grow. And uh, there are three things that really stuck with me on our last trip to Greece that we took that I'd like you to kind of elaborate a little bit on um, because it's really helped me. And rather than you know me doing it in a podcast, I'd rather people hear it from you personally. So the first one is this was this was something that sort of came up at lunch one day. Um, people talk about what they're working out, and they don't talk about what they have mastery in. So that's now become our our personal little mantra over the last year. But maybe you can kind of unpack how you came up with that and yeah. and, and explain it. Yeah, but one of the, probably one of the bigger learnings uh, of my life is uh, this whole world of like. I don't know. Let's just take the self-help world, right? You could walk into any bookstore and there's just, uh, there's just aisles and aisles and aisles and aisles of books and new programs. And, and it always just dawned on me, like, why, why is there so many? If this, you know, isn't, isn't, shouldn't, this, shouldn't there be one book on the shelf? And, um, and that always fascinated me. So, I, so, you know, I learned this early on in my, in my uh, you know, sort of chiropractic career where... I would take these lessons from business management companies and, uh, you know, they would stand up at the front of the room and they would teach you this stuff and I go back and do it and it would be like, sort of worked, maybe, and not so much. But then what I would do is I would say, hey, listen, you know, I felt like today's lesson was really cool. I've tried it. You know, w- could I shadow you in your office for a day? And, uh, and then I would go shadow and that's when I would realize that well, that's weird. The thing they're teaching at the front uh, isn't the, like they're doing that in their office, yeah, but like there's a whole other world of things they're doing that they're not really telling you about. And so when I watched all those interactions, I was just, you know, just, it was pages and pages and pages of notes. And uh, so I would much rather model someone uh, than I would, you know, listen to a lecture. Because what I learned really quickly was that people that are very competent are actually doing their competent, their competent things unconsciously. They just automatically do the things that made them successful without thinking about them. So if they're not thinking about them, they're probably not talking about them. And so they're, what they're doing is uh, they're working on what, what, what we call you know, conscious competence, right? Like 
We are actively working on these things that I know will make me better. And then that's actually what people begin to teach because that's how they become competent. And uh, that's the first thing you do is you learn and then you teach and then you learn and then you teach and that's how you actually become competent. And so what, when you go to these lectures, oftentimes you're missing what made them successful in the first place. And so it's really important to get under the skin, like to do these interviews or to listen to podcasts because the person that's, you know, spewing the, the kind of the advice du jour is leaving out all the stuff they unconsciously do. And so getting to that is really important. Fascinating. Okay. The next one uh, that we took away from that was anchor yourself to the milestone and eliminate distractions. That was huge for me because we were having a deep conversation about lots of different things and you just kind of like blurted out, look, just anchor yourself to the milestone and eliminate distractions. How do you, uh, what does that mean and how do you apply it? Yeah. So I actually learned that from a, uh, a friend of mine, Chris, who's an Ironman. And, uh, oftentimes, you know, I'm like, I mean, how do you even set the mindset up, you know, to focus on your swim when you know you're, you're going to be running a marathon at the end of all this? Like, how, like, what do you begin? Where's your brain? And he used to always say, man, I, I'm just trying to swim to the next buoy. And that always struck me as like, and I'm like, you don't think about like the shore or like how you're going to turn the corner. No, I just, I just look at the next buoy and I swim to that. And then once I'm there, I look at the next one and all I'm trying to do is get to the next one. And then, so I took that and in, in, into business. And, and one thing I know about myself and know about, you know, success in business is if you look back at all the steps that it took you to get to where you were, how many of those steps were planned and predictable? And you'd realize like 80% of them were unplanned and unpredictable. And so if you take that and work it the other way, you know, success lurks, you know, kind of just beyond what you can see. And so you have to pick something in your site, uh, a milestone of some sort, and just get to that. And don't worry about anything past that. Just get to that because then when you get there, you'll you'll see what the next one is. But you have to have enough faith to get to that one. And I think that's where people crash. They can't see beyond that one, and so they think they're done. And so for me, I just, I'm like, okay, uh, I'm just going to take this one day at a time, and I'm going to put my entire well-being on, in just this next milestone. And then when I get there, I know that the next one will appear for me, and I don't know what it's going to be now, but it'll appear, and it always has. It's a great visual with the Iron Man. Um, the third one is a, a little bit um, a, a self-interested thing. Um, most of this podcast actually is self-interested. Um, <laughs> you, you, you said to me, you know, look, it was we were having lunch, and I was going back and forth, and we were, you know, I was, I was talking about something I want to do, and you said, look, man, you just got to do you. You, you're really, really good at modeling people. You know, like we talked about a minute how you a minute ago how you went in and you you learned what by shadowing people you learned that you can model certain strategies, which I knew as well, but I took it too far, and I modeled them so much that I lost myself in it. And you said, look, man, you just got to do you. Can you kind of elaborate on what you meant by that? Oh, it's so easy to get lost in, uh, other people's, you know, you know, uh, quote unquote success. And, you know, it's very easy to grab a book off the shelf and just say, I'm going to do what they did because they're successful now. And I'm just going to go do that. 
And you very quickly realize, again, that the, the items in that book are, contain the things that they're working out themselves. And there's still, you'd have to unlock all the things that they're unconsciously doing. And so you end up chasing uh, other people's stuff. And, um, and then you worse off, you, you put your whole being into their whole being. And rather than uh, the approach of you know, figuring out who you are as an individual and what your strengths and talents are, and then borrowing gems from other, from a multitude. Like, you know, I have a whole brain trust of folks that I pull things from. And people that, you know, might not actually be a nice person. They, they actually wouldn't be someone I'd have a beer with. But you know what? They can market like no other. And so I'm going to pull that gem out of that person. And I'm not going to write off that person just because I wouldn't like hanging out with them. But I'm going to pull that gem and I'm going to make it my gem. And I'm going to turn it into me. But you're not going to have their marriage. I'm, I'm not going to have their marriage. <laughs> and so many times I did that. And here's what would happen. I get so wrapped up in an individual. And then their marriage crumbled. Or they treated their wife like, you know, crap. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm not doing anything they do. And I wrote the person off and every bit of their learning off. And you can learn some incredible things from some pretty bad people. Uh, and so... You know, I think it's important to really figure out your compass and figure out what you care about and take things from other people, gems, and make them your own. And then you build this confident kind of person in yourself, which is just a collection of all these learnings. And, uh, and so rather than just trying to follow one guru, uh, if you will. So we talked about so many things and you have so many ideas for what you want to, cause we, you know, we'll spend a couple of weeks together. You have so many ideas that we've bounced off, you know, back and forth with each other that you want to do. And I said, well, how do you do it? And you say, well, you know, I write out a couple of pages, I get some clarity, I distill it down into a few paragraphs and then I just might distill it down into a few words. Can you kind of describe that, that process and why it works for you? So I go through this process quite a bit, actually. Business planning, personal life planning. Uh, after I've been to a seminar, you know, certainly after hanging out with you, uh, there's enough thoughts. That we, I mean, you could imagine two weeks with one individual, three meals a day. Uh, you, you've uh, stumbled across some thoughts. And so the way, you know, the way you do this, or at least the way I've done it, is... Um, you can do this with sticky notes or you can write it out, however, however you want to do it. I used to do it in a mind map software. Um, and so uh, today I'm in the sticky notes, but back then I was in mind, mind mapping. And so you just you get them out. Like the first thought that comes to mind, uh, you know, that you've discovered on this trip, just get them out and just, you know, brainstorm that list. Then what you do is you look at that list and you'll start to find that some of those things, you know, belong together. And so, for example, if on my list, let's say I decided on this trip that I was inspired by the house we're staying in and I want to redo my hardwoods at home and maybe I want to, you know, redo my backyard or maybe I want to do. And so there, there's things that actually naturally clump together and then could become a theme around, ah, oh, we're just going to remodel our downstairs. And uh, but then you have another theme around I want to pre-book all my family trips to make sure that I do get to see my family this year. And so you get, so then you clump these things into themes and then I, you know, put them into, I have this software, it's kind of like checklist software where I then load them into that. And then so that I'm constantly, 
uh, reviewing them and making sure I'm, I'm checking these things off. And uh, so it, it takes something that can be otherwise overwhelming, which is a list of, you know, 400 items, and you can distill it down into like 20, uh, 20 projects maybe, uh, or 15 projects that you're working on that may have some tasks inside of them. And the, uh, the software you use is OmniFocus, and uh, the one I use is Things. We go back and forth on who's is better. Uh, <laughs> so on this trip, I already learned um, a few more ideas from you. Uh, for example, you're currently um, working on maximizing pleasures each day. And it's, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's everything from soaps, that you've shipped in from London to the way you feel when you walk around your house with a cup of coffee in the morning to the car that you get in and what that environment feels like. Can you describe a bit more about what you're after here and just give us a little bit more color? Yeah, so I think your environment and rituals, obviously the people you surround yourself with, the conversations you have and how you think about things really shape, uh, you know, really shape, you know, what your outcome is going to be. And, um, you know, our days are long. We don't really uh, travel a lot or, or go out to dinner a lot or socialize a lot while we're working. Uh, we kind of work hard and then we kind of play hard. And then we just go away for two weeks, you know, and we totally don't do any work. By the way, it's a great name for a podcast. Yeah, it, you should, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we embrace that to its fullest. And so when you, when you are in your work hard mode... Um, I think we all know, like, if you just dress better, you actually interact better with people. Uh, you probably notice that if you wear, uh, you know, if you, you surround yourself with certain things that you just operate better. So for me, and it doesn't always have to be luxury. I just happen to like luxury. But my, you know, there's people in my life that, you know, uh, uh, you know, frugality actually gives them energy. And uh, where for me, frugality probably doesn't give me so much energy. Not that any one of us is right or wrong, but you just have to pick the thing that gives you the best energy. And when I say energy, like it puts you in the best state. Inspired. Yeah, you're inspired, you're connected, you're grounded. You're not bragging, but you're not, you know, overly meek. You're just kind of in that really good state. And so for me, I try to think of all the things I interact with throughout my day. So I'm not waiting. I'm not sacrificing my days and waiting for my two-week trip with Rob in the summer. Like I'm maximizing the sheets I'm in. My bedding is a very important to me. And the sheets I'm in, the pillow I'm in, the bed I'm sleeping on, hey, I'm eight to 10 hours a night on that thing. It better be, you know, wonderful. And then, you know, I get up and I want it, when I stroll into the bathroom, I want to make sure that, I, that the bathroom is one of my favorite places in the house behind the kitchen because we spend so much time in there too, getting ready, getting set up for the day. And so what are the soaps you're using? The shampoo, you know, the razor blade. That, you know, I have a hand, handmade razor blade from my brother. And every morning, not every morning, every other morning when I shave with that, I'm thinking of my brother who, who, who turned that on, on a lathe and made that for me. And, uh, Your brother physically created the he razor. He made my razor Is that what blade. he does? Yeah. Oh, well, he know. doesn't do that for a living, but oh. that's like his passion. That's his passion, hobby? Oh, that's right? fascinating. Oh, yeah, wood turning. It actually goes way back in my family. Uh, my, my grandfather, uh, well, and my uncle, a great uncle, actually um, patented the first you know, pepper grinder. But yeah, so that's important. The tea I drink in the morning is, is very important. Uh, um, the clothing you, know, you put on, the ritual, the sequence, the reading the, 
you know, the, the notes for the day, um, the fuel you put in yourself. Um, so just incrementally making sure that, is this the best way I want to shave my face? Is this, is this the right, does this, you know, this cream, this whatever, like I don't, you know, you'll never catch me with a big throwaway razor. Uh, because you know what happens the, the whole, you know, next four hours, you're constantly distracted by the razor burn. Uh, yeah. He's just, it's terrible. And this is why I love you. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how you view psychology and abundance mindset. I remembered, uh, there was a time, I can't remember the exact, um, the exact number, but I remember once, I don't know, we were out somewhere getting a cup of coffee and I, I think you had like $5,000 in cash in your pocket. Oh, yeah. And I was like... Wow, good memory. I was like, what the... Like, who carries 5000 And you're like, I, I need it for my mindset. I'm like, for your mindset? What are you talking about? Can you elaborate a little bit wow. on, on why you did that? Bringing up an oldie. Uh, that was probably... A, I don't know where I got that lesson, um, but definitely life-changing lesson for sure. I'm like, I'm like re-inspired just hearing it. Um, so for me, so for me, you know, growing up, not having much, you have a pretty much a, what people refer to as kind of this scarcity mindset. You're terrified that you're either going to lose something or not be able to have something all the time. It, it just consumes your brain. And so the way you overcome that is you, is you hoard things. You, you're, you you become defined by the things you can buy and have. And, um, and so like suddenly your self-worth is like, oh, I need that expensive watch or I need that expensive car. I need that $4,000 suit or I need this. And you, you kind of go through that and then it spins itself because you go buy it and then you're poor again. And then so all of your self-worth, you know, literally the money, the cash you should have is wrapped up inside of things and it becomes very empty and everybody knows that that's no way to, and so so to change that, um, I, I, I can't remember who it was, but they said, uh, put what you want to make in a day in your pocket in cash. And, uh, and I argued with them because I'm a very logical person. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I'm like, why would I do that? I'm going to get robbed. I mean, it looks stupid. I have this big bulge in my pocket all times. And uh, like, it's just, that's just dumb. Try it. So I did it. So I did it for 30 days. And they're like, I want you to write down all the purchases you do in the, in the next 30 days. And so it turns out when you have this money in your pocket, your self-worth transfers a little bit to your left front left pocket. And when you look at the watch or the, uh, the thing that you think you need to have uh, du jour, uh, you're like, yeah, I can totally have that at any moment because I could just buy it with this money in my pocket right now. And, uh, but then you start to begin to value the money in your pocket more than that thing. And so like it, it began to like slowly, this took years, probably three years of doing this, where I suddenly didn't need to have things to feel uh, like I was somebody. Uh, and so I began to shed that because I was like, yeah, I could have that at any time. It's when you can't have it, it's when you actually, you know, want it the most. It's kind of like when you go into a store with a, a pocket full of cash and you can't find anything you can't, to buy. You but can't when spend you, it. When you, when you can't. It was the best lesson I ever learned because now I truly put the things in my life that really add value and energy to me in a very, you know, uh, grounded way rather than a very like fleeting, like, oh, Rob has this, I need this. Like, oh, 
that you know business leader that I'm. You like if I want to buy it, I could buy it. I, yeah, I could have that. So but it I don't, shifts psychology. It was a big, probably the biggest shifter. If you grew up without things, uh, it it was a big thing. So what's your current approach to choosing? We'll call it masterminding quotes that will help take you to your next level. How do you how do you think about that? You really are who you surround yourself with. And, uh, and really, even more than that, it's the conversation you're having and then the thinking you're having after the conversation. And so it just made sense for me very early, the concept of mastermind. Uh, I've been in a mastermind group probably my whole life. And uh, the first one was, I guess, outside of college. Then I got into these chiropractic masterminds. Um, but then I found myself like, it was one dimensional. Like I was learning what other chiropractors were doing in their business and chiropractors are sort of weird. They didn't, uh, borrow a lot from other industries. In fact, they made other, you know, other professions oftentimes wrong. And, uh, so I had, I found myself getting very tunnel vision. And so I broke out of that and I joined a group. Uh, I guess the first one was called Vistage. I did that for four years. It was a CEO group. And so you're surrounded by CEOs that were, you know, constantly working on their business and, uh, and we would process certain topics. And so there's 12 people in that group and you meet once a month. Uh, and then I had a coaching session once a month. And then every quarter we had a speaker of some sort come in. And I did that for four years, probably, uh, you know, hyper accelerated, uh, business. Then after Vistage, um, I did, uh, um, well, I guess what I'm in now is uh, a thing called I Innovate, and I Innovate is kind of a it's kind of a uh, a branch out of YPO Young Presidents Organization, where it's hyper focused on tech CEOs. And so I don't have a tech background; I'm not a technical person overly. I'm passionate about it, and so I wanted to surround myself with CEOs that you know built software companies. And so now I have you know ten or twelve folks in my CEO group that are all raising money, building software, had exits of, you know, you know, substantial amounts. And, uh, and so I'm hyper immersed in this kind of tech tech world now. And there, and there's some of my, you know, close friends now, um, you know, from this group. So you're, you, you truly are the, uh, the average of the five people that you hang out with. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, we all have people that inspire us. You inspire me and that's why we're doing this. Can you describe um, the recent conversation you had with your new billionaire bestie on how he set up his company's core values um, to give you a prompt, the Robin Williams example, and why that experience meeting him made such an impact on you? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to, uh, again, out of my CEO group, I had an introduction to uh, a new friend of mine who um, basically he's in the assisted living world, which at surface you're like, okay, that sounds cool. But like, you know, so when I went to that meeting, I I'd had pretty like mediocre expectations. I was like, okay, I'm going to hear about assisted living and how I made a bunch of money and that's going to be really cool. And like nothing like that even happened. And so I got there and I realized, you know, how multidimensional this human being was probably right now, like my man crush right now. And, and, uh, just because he has figured out a way to really master, you know, probably six or seven different domains in his life in such a way that's so inspirational. 
And I was literally introduced to him because we just built this new space. We have a $3 million uh, space we just built out, and we're seeking out the best way to put our core values into our space. And um, the my my I Innovate leader, uh, Joe, who, who runs our group and, and is the founder of the, the group itself, introduced me to him and said he's done the best job of putting his core values in his space. So I'm like, great, I'm going to go see some words on a wall and maybe a painting or two, and it'll be cool. So I show up, nothing, I mean, it's like a museum. Like I walked into this place, I was like, am I even in the U.S. anymore? And, um, and so what he's done is he's, his core values are single words like intellect and humor. And, um, and so, you, you know, to, to piggyback on the example you gave, the humor... Uh, so you go to this section of the company where humor is there, and he has uh, a, a restored Derringer motorbike, which was Robin Williams's first motorbike. I can't imagine how much that even cost. And uh, and then he had Robin Williams. Uh, he he hired Robin Williams to speak to his company in all the phrases that he took from all of his movies and put them together. And then the Robbins uh, team mashed it up with all the, like the visual uh, clips of all those movies. And so, you know, you tap on the screen and it's Robin Williams talking to you as a teammate uh, about all about the, the value of humor in caregiving. And you're just like, who does that? Like, who does that? Yeah. And now multiply that by eight to 10 times. And like, you could probably, and some of the art on there, you could tell is worth quite a pretty penny. I mean, he had a tree house in there. He had a meditation garden. And uh, the, just to the extent that his life is th literally through his building is, is uh, amazing. He, he mentions uh, six people going around the world for six months, you know, collecting items, uh, to get it to get into this uh, space to get it right and I see why this is so important to you because one of the things that you said earlier when we started this is how important things need to feel it's all about you know your feeling dictates you know your success and he has, has immersed himself in state you know providing environment and he could literally, well, here's another really interesting thing. There's a spiral staircase that walks up from the garage. And so as you're walking up the spiral staircase, imagine in the center a lifelike, life-size sculpture of a gymnast, a muscular gymnast, uh, falling backwards with the arms in the air and the legs in the air, falling backwards and hanging there. And you would think, okay, that's just a cool sculpture. And he's like, no, it's very intentional. I want people every day they walk in here to, to, to notice that no matter, gymnasts are masters of their trade, right? They spend eight to 10 hours a day mastering every move. But if they do one little thing wrong, they fall. And even monkey fall from tree, right? And so it just reminds us that don't, don't get too, you know, don't sit back on your laurels too much. Like, at any moment, you can fall. And it's a reminder every day as they come out of that garage uh, that it, you could fall. I wonder how many of these things are unconscious to the employees there or how many of them need to be pointed out to them? Well, um, it's a good question. I, I think he spends a good, a good amount of time making sure the lesson could be gathered or gained just by being around it enough. 
And I think there are certain times in your life where certain lessons around the space will resonate more than others. Uh, and so it's an ongoing life lesson, if you will. And you probably gravitate to different areas of the company in different moments. But uh, it's a magical experience if you ever get to uh, tour that. It's crazy. All right, slight left turn. Uh, slight left turn. What bad behaviors are you currently working on with yourself? Yeah, so I have a propensity to be fairly lazy, um, and uh, you know, I n- n- people who know me would they they just don't understand that because uh, you know we just do so much and we have so much going on. It's hard to understand that, but I I do have a lazy behavior, and so. It's not uncommon for me on a Saturday, you know, to sleep in fairly late and, um, and uh, you know, take, take a little bit longer than normal to get out of bed. Um, and so I, I really realize that I lose a lot of productivity in that laziness. Um, and, uh, and so being far more productive, um, you know, I don't know how else to explain it other than I feel like I have a propensity to be lazy. It doesn't occur during the week. Um, it mainly occurs on the weekends uh, and usually, you know, in the cabin or something. But, uh, yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up with our rapid fire questions. So feel free to answer these questions as quickly as you want, but they don't have to be. Um, but just the first thing that comes to your mind. If you could have a dream phone call with anyone alive who would it be, and what would you ask him? Um, right now, it's uh, it's it's Richard Branson again, just because I'm rereading his book. Mm-hmm. Which one? And uh, uh, losing my virginity. Mm-hmm. And then um, the question I'd ask him would be more around his rituals and like how you know how he sets his days up and his travel up, um, and how he you know manages his state. What's your favorite documentary? Oh, right now, uh, ooh, favorite's hard, but right now I'm watching the Vietnam War. Uh, Ken Burns, love it, love, love it. What is the one thing that you own that you probably should throw out, but you never will? God, I have this terrible-looking Versace <laughs> shirt. Again, bought when I thought that that mattered, and uh, every time I try to throw it out, you can't. It's like orange and pink, and like, <laughs> like uh, I just can't. I can't throw it out. <laughs> Uh, what's the most interesting conversation you've had lately? Um, always with you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've just coming off, uh, you know, 10 days in, in, uh, and so I, I just always love the conversation we have around, uh, you know, how we're thinking about our travel plans and, and growth plans for next year. Best advice for your 30 year old self. Yeah. So, uh, success lurks you know, in the unknown. If I could go back, I would make sure that earlier on, I wasn't tied to having to see the outcome. I would just get to the next, you know, milestone. milestone. Next buoy. It's so important. A whole life opens up that you didn't know you didn't know. And it's always magical. And it almost always happens. But when you're 30, if you can't see it, you don't believe it. Do you remember our 30-year-old conversations where um, I'd say, what's your 10-year plan? And we would yeah. really take it seriously? Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Like, I had 25 year plan. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a 25 year plan. And now I look at it and it's like, uh, it, it's just ridiculous. It's just now cool. I don't do anything more than 90 days out. Yeah. 90 days. And, that, and that's a lot. Um, okay. Last question. What are you most excited about in your life right now? This next year. Uh, and so we're at an awesome phase of our company where, um, you know, we, we have built out a product team in, in, uh, in our company and we own our kind of our destiny to the best we can right now. And, uh, so I feel like I've been reborn, uh, into, um, and, and I feel like the creativity just got unleashed. And so, uh, super excited for the next phase of the company and, um, more excited than I've ever been to, to continue on. Dude, I just want to thank you uh, for being in my life and uh, for everything that you've done. I could not imagine uh, a better way for me to launch a podcast than to do it on vacation with the guy I love the most. So we did it, man. We did it. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.